0: Two weeks ago, we looked at Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11, and there we saw that when we look to Christ, we will look to Him in faith, trusting Him to be our Savior, following Him as our King, we are made new people. Our old life in Adam, the father of all humanity, our our old life of sin in Him is stripped off of us like an old dirty coat, and new life in Christ, in the new Adam, is Put on us. God now considers us His people in His Son. And we saw Paul argue that because we have taken off our old lives, we are also to take off our old way of living. It's not just our standing before God that has changed, there is an expectation for how we should be living. And so we called that message New People. Killing old ways because Paul said that we were to put to death the sin that exists in our hearts that was that, is, that characterizes our old way of life in Adam. We're, we're to put it to death, we're to kill it, we're to be done with it because we are new people in Christ. This morning we want to finish off chapter 3 and we want to see the other side of the coin. It's not enough to simply put off sin. Paul says we must put on righteousness. It's not just a matter of of not sinning. We must actively pursue a life of godliness. And so this morning, we want to see what it means for new people to live out new ways. We want to see what it means for God's people to put on godliness. And we want to do that by looking at Colossians 3, beginning at verse 12. Paul says this, "...put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May God bless the reading of his word. In these verses, Paul tells the Colossians and really all Christians, even us today, that if we are a Christian then we have passed from death to life. We have passed from darkness to light. We have passed from being part of the old creation that is passing away to part of the new creation that is even now coming into the world. And that means we simply cannot live the same way anymore. Our life before Christ and our life after Christ must be visibly different. A change must take place in every part of our lives. And in these verses, Paul tells us positively what those changes look like. This morning, he gives us six ways that our life should reflect who we are in Christ. Six ways in which we are to be growing in godliness. And so the first one that we see is this. We are to live as the people of Christ. We are to live as the people of Christ. In in this sense, it is not so much an all-encompassing thing, although it is certainly part of that, but rather it is a frame of reference for our mind. We're not just to get up uh, in the morning, and and put our feet on the bed, and kind of sit there, and try and get our head together uh, to, to to get up and start the day, thinking about all the things that we're doing, and thinking that you know uh, I'm John, I'm the son of Sandy and Gary, I'm the I'm the husband of Melinda, I'm the father of Joshua and Rebecca and David and Elizabeth. No, no, no. My first my my first orientation is, I am one of Christ's people, and then everything else follows. So that, so that, that living as as the, as the as a person of Christ, as, as one of the people of God, that becomes the kind of all-encompassing focus for what we do, and how we live. And notice that that we are the people of Christ because we have put on Christ, the new man, and because we belong to Christ, we also belong to God. In fact, Paul bases the exhortation to live a new life on this foundation: you are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now the first thing we need to to think about about this phrase, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, is that it's lifted almost directly from the Old Testament. This This is how Israel was described as the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. So for example, in Deuteronomy 7, Moses tells Israel, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. What does Moses say? Israel is God's chosen people, holy and beloved. And now Paul says that is who we are as the church, as the people of Christ Israel is no longer the chosen people of God because of the work of Christ. Now all who are in Christ, Jews and Gentiles together in the church, they are the people of God. They are God's chosen people. Thus the church becomes in Christ, who is the true Israelite, the true Israel. The church becomes all that Israel was meant to be, not however based on ethnicity anymore, but based on faith in the Son of God. And notice how they became a part of this church. How did you come to be part of the people of God? Paul is clear. They are chosen by God. Now this doctrine often raises eyebrows or angers hearts or confuses minds, but it is meant to do the opposite. When you read Ephesians chapter 1, the the choice of God and salvation causes Paul to explode in praise and worship to the living God. And it should have the same effect on us. By saying that God chose His people, even even Israel back then and now those who are part of the church, the Bible is saying that before they were born, before they either sinned and rebelled against Him, or before they did anything good that might cause them to think they were worthy of God's attention, God is the one who purposed to make them one of His children. He purposed not only to send Christ to save sinners, but He purposed to choose to save a specific people for Himself. That doesn't mean we we have no choice on the matter. We do. Making a conscious decision to put your faith in Jesus to follow him is essential. Because apart from faith in Christ, salvation does not come. But what we must understand is God takes the initiative, drawing us to himself, choosing us that we might choose him. Thus the apostle John can say in, in his first letter. We love because God first loved us. We make the choice to trust God, to believe Him, to follow Him as Savior because He has chosen us to be one of His people. Now why is this initiative on God's part so important? Because frankly, apart from God first choosing us, we would never choose Him. He must send the Spirit to give us life and faith. Otherwise, we would never choose God. Remember, Paul tells the Ephesians before Christ... You were spiritually dead in your sins. In Romans chapter 3, he says, No one seeks after God, the one true God. We love seeking after our own gods. We love making ourselves our own God. But Paul says, because of the utter depravity of humanity, we are born with sinful hearts, not bent with wanting, wanting to know and follow and worship and love the one true God, but doing the opposite, running away from Him. We may be a nice person, we may give to charity, we may love our kids and buy coffee for street people, but apart from God's work, our hearts are hardened in rebellion towards Him. We may be nice and loving, but it will always be on our terms, not God's. This is why we need, as Paul says in a Second. Corinthians 4, the light of the glory of the, of the face of Christ to be shined into our hearts by the Spirit of God to give us life and to open our eyes to see the reality of our need of God and His provision for that need in His Son, Jesus Christ. It is God who works within us through the word of the gospel by His Spirit to produce faith in him. Therefore, we freely choose God. That is because he has done a work in us by his own choice. This is what Jesus tells the disciples in John 15. He tells them flat out, you did not choose me. Really? I, th- I thought he said, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they followed him. It looks like they chose him, but what does he say? You did not choose me, but I chose you. Why? I chose you, Jesus says, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now Paul is saying the same thing about the church that Jesus told the disciples that Moses told Israel about themselves. Based on the grammar of the verse, I think Paul explains what it means to be God's chosen people when he says they are holy and beloved. Jesus said he chose his disciples and called them to be holy. That is to be set apart from the world that they might bear spiritual fruit and that it would abide. And they have the confidence to do this knowing that they are loved by God. Whatever they ask the Father, he is going to give them that they might go and bear fruit that would abide. This then becomes the very foundation of all our attempts at living a godly life. We must remember that we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Conversely, if you are not a Christian, then you have no basis for living a godly life. You can try hard. You can change surface habits. But at the end of the day, there is a sin problem that springs from the heart. So as much uh, polish and lacquer finish you put over it, there is still corruption in your soul. And it must be dealt with by God. And this is why he he says, Come to me, sinners, poor and needy. I will make you rich spiritually in Christ. I will supply your needs in Him. I will give you the salvation you need to be right with me. So this morning, if you have a desire to live a good life, understand it must come by a right orientation with God. And God has done everything imaginable to make that orientation possible through His Son, Jesus Christ. Fundamentally, we are to live as Christ's people, and as such, we are to live with the character of Christ. This is the second thing that we see. We are to live with the character of Christ. Verse 12, "...put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience." Paul says, "...if you have put on the new man, Christ, then live like Him, put on His character." Specifically, he says, put on compassionate hearts. What is this? This is love characterized by mercy. You see someone in need, and rather than letting them endure what they deserve, you extend mercy to them. Suppose you know a woman who is, uh, or a man, it doesn't, doesn't matter either one, but they have not handled their finances well, and they can't pay their bills, and they're stuck. Now, in one sense, they deserve what they get. If they have wasted money, uh, then, then they deserve to have trouble. However, when we give them a food basket, or when we slip them a 20 for gas, or do something else to help them, what are we doing? We are displaying compassionate hearts. We are extending love in mercy towards them. Closely related to this is the next word, kindness. It is related to God's goodness, in, in that it is often attributed a to Him as Uh, as a character quality of God himself. And it talks about, in that context, God's kindness is his gracious provision of salvation to his people. He is kind towards them, even when they are not deserving of that kindness. Thus Paul is saying, like God himself, even like Christ himself, we are to be both merciful and gracious toward others. Then Paul says we are to put on humility. Having uh, listened to a couple of talks recently on humility, I like the definition that John Dixon uses to explain what humility is. He says this, Humility is the noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. Now, why do I like that definition? I like that definition because that's pretty much how Paul describes the incarnation of Christ in Philippians 2. Listen to what he says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What did the Lord Jesus do? He gave up his status, he deployed his resources, and he used his influence for the good of others, even the salvation of sinners. And Paul says, live like that, live like Christ. Be humble, be humble. He also says that we are to put on meekness and patience. When we think of meekness, probably these days, we probably think of being a pushover, don't we? Just someone that you just kind of run over and can boss around. But that's not what the word means. The, the, the word meekness means, more or less, you're not all that impressed with yourself. You're not walking around thinking that, that the world owes you everything with your chest out, even if you're really good at something. You're not a, a, a braggadocio kind of person. I don't even know why I use that word. That's stupid. But anyway, you understand the point there. Meekness, then, is how we view ourselves, and patience is how, then, we treat other people. If, if we are not thinking too much of ourselves, that means we are going to be patient with others, even when they're not meek or when they don't quite get it. And we're having to, to work with them. We are not going to be easily frustrated with them. We're going to take time with them. We are going to bear with them. All of these character qualities find their root in Christ. And all of these things, this is how Jesus himself, during the incarnation and even now, relates to his people. And notice, all of these are outward-focused virtues. What does that mean? That means that these virtues are most clearly seen in how we relate to other people. It's hard to see humility unless you're in a group context. It's hard to see meekness and patience and and goodness and kindness and compassionate hearts. You can't see all that unless someone is interacting with someone else. And the whole point here that Paul is getting at is, this is how God's people are to live with one another. This is the kind of character that should come out when we get together living with one another, living for one another, caring about one another. We are to, we are to be built up into one new man. We are, to, we are to experience life together as God's people through these character qualities. And Paul doesn't just give us these things in the abstract. He tells us what to do with these things. What do they look like in action? If we put on Christ, then verse 13, we will be bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You see, in Christ we are new people, but that doesn't mean that we're perfect, is it? It definitely doesn't mean we're all the same. I mean, you know, just go around and ask who you root for on Saturday afternoons, and it's going to be clear we're not all the same. Okay. There will be differences of opinion, there will be different expectations about life, there will be different tastes and preferences, there will be different burdens of life, there will be sin. There will be times when people in the church don't deserve your friendship or your help. There will be times when people in the church will act foolishly and even wrong you. And yet, and yet, because Christ is patient with us, Because Christ has forgiven us, so we must also be patient and bear with one another. We must extend forgiveness to one another. We're imitating our Savior, Christ. If we have put on Christ, then we will live with his character. The third thing that we see here is that we will live under the love of Christ. We will live under the love of Christ. Paul has told us the kind of character that should fill our hearts and the kind of attitude it should produce within us toward one another. And notice what he says next in verse 14. Above all these, that is all these virtues just listed, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is pictured as that virtue which covers all others. It binds them together so that there is perfect harmony, not just in this kind of uh, uh, life of Christ, but in that life of Christ lived with one another. Do you remember what Paul said back in verse 11? Here, that is, here in the new man, Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, how do you bring together that eclectic kind of group and maintain unity, peace, and harmony? You do it by loving one another. Understand, we're not talking about a kind of gushy, syrupy, hugfest kind of love. That is not what we're talking about here. Uh, m- many times, uh, the, the, the truth has been compromised or sacrificed altogether in the name of persevering and promoting some vague idea that people call love. There are situations where love, so-called, has been used to trump righteousness or discipline or justice, not just in the church, but in society as a whole. In fact, in society as a whole today, when we say love, we largely mean lust. That's not what Paul's getting at here. He means a deep, sacrificial, life-changing kind of love, the kind that is seen in Christ's love for his people. But there's another danger here. The first is reducing love to some surface emotion that is devoid of commitment and substance. But the other danger is to simply think love can be reduced to acts of service. I can remember one man in a church that we attended, and I'll never forget it. It was in the context of a business meeting. and this, this older gentleman stood up and he said, You know, God calls me to love each and every one of you. But I never seen the Bible where he says I have to like you. So in his mind, in his mind he can show up, he can do things at church, he can serve, he can do things for one another, not, not like him one bit, not want to go out to lunch with him or spend any time with him or talk to him, but he can still serve them, and that was called love. Well, you know, to, to be honest, I, I, mean, I kind of know where he gets that because there was this old idea for a while that all of these Greek words for love all meant something very specific. So eros, you had romantic love between a husband and a wife and, and phileo was a kind of brotherly love between people and agape, oh, that was the, that was the godly love that you know, the, the, had lack of self-interest and it would, would, would even die for somebody. The problem is when you actually read the Bible and see how those words are used, that doesn't, that doesn't work. I mean, eros doesn't even exist in the Bible, but but agape and phileo are used interchangeably all the time. Agape is even used in the Old Testament Greek version to describe a, a sinful, incestual lust of a brother for his daughter that leads him to rape her. That doesn't sound like a godly, selfless love to me. But, but, but this mindset of, well, if I really love somebody, then it's not gonna, I don't care if I like them or if I'm getting anything, I'm just just gonna go and do something for them. You can see where that leads to a trajectory of saying, I don't have to like you, but, but I can love you. But you know what Paul says? Paul says that that doesn't, that doesn't work. Both biblically or in the real world. Do you remember, you remember the beginning of 1 Corinthians 13? Remember what he says? If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am just a noising gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Think about what Paul is saying there. Paul is saying you can be an amazing teacher you can have a depth of knowledge of God's word that blows people away each and every time you get together, uh proclaiming with, with strong rhetoric and all kinds of amazing skills. He says, but if you don't love people, that doesn't mean anything. He goes even so far as so you can you can literally give away everything you possess. You can literally take the shirt off your back and hand it to somebody. You can even die a martyr's death. But if you don't love people, says so you gain nothing. Friends, that's staggering. That is staggering, but it's corrective too. What it means is love can never be just reduced to an emotion, nor can it never just be reduced to some act of service. The two are intricately wed together. There is both affection and action when it comes to biblical love. Loveliness is a sincere emotion that leads to sacrificial service towards others. I think just for a minute, what might might that look like on Sunday morning? We we could spend the rest of our time here Um, just listing and and thinking through together things. Here's just a couple. Think about these and then go home this afternoon or or we go back for lunch in a few minutes, maybe more than a few minutes, and we think about more of these things. Loving God's people on Sunday morning might mean you come not worrying about getting the best seat or the freshest cup of coffee. It might mean giving up what's easy and convenient for you on Sundays in order to serve others so that they can have an easy and convenient Sunday and not complaining about it. It may just just mean being committed to show up each week, not just out of habit, but out of a sincere desire to encourage other people that sit next to you in class and in this auditorium. It can mean all kinds of things. We could go on and on and on. But the question is this. Are you loving God's people? You, you, you know, we kind of say, oh yeah, God's people we love, we, we love. But, you know, the proof is in the pudding, as they say. You know, you can you, just because you're involved, just because you show up, that doesn't mean you love anybody. Christ loved you he loved the people sitting next to you who have put their faith in him and the question is are you following his example are you covering over all of the other virtues that you are called to live in with this virtue of love which is meant to bind not only those virtues together but also the people of god together as one body True love is real, heartfelt emotion that doesn't fail in the fires of life, but produces practical, tangible care for one another, both care for the body and the soul. We are to live under the love of Christ. We are also, number four, to live by the peace of Christ. We are to live by the peace of Christ. Here the passage shifts in that we are not so much commanded to do something as to allow something to be done to us. Picking up on this theme of unity among God's people, Paul says that you you are to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Peace is one of the key blessings the New Testament talks about in terms of being a Christian. And first it means we have peace with God. Before we were reconciled to God through Christ, we were His enemies. We stood in a position of rebellion against Him and therefore deserved condemnation. But now, through the sending of God's own Son, we have peace with God. This truth was driven home to Don Richardson many, many years ago on the mission field. In his book, Peace Child, he talks about going to the Sawi people with his wife and infant child in 1962. The Sawi lived on an island then called uh, Dutch New Guiana, I think. And it was uh, an island just above Australia. And this Sawi people, they were known to be cannibalistic headhunters, a very violent people living in virtual isolation from the modern world. And Richardson took time to learn their very complex language and began telling them stories from the Bible, trying to, to lay the groundwork to get to the gospel. And much to his horror, he, he arrives at the, 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 the Passion evening, Jesus praying in the garden, and Judas comes and kisses him in betrayal. And he is taken away by the Roman and Jewish authorities. And all of the Sawwee people begin to clap and yell and whoop and holler. And Richardson's like, what just happened? So he begins to probe further. Why are you cheering for this man Judas? It becomes clear. For the Sawwee people, the greatest virtue is, is being able to pull off a trick on somebody else. So, so if you are crafty, if you're sneaky, and you're able to get one over on somebody, you're awesome. Judas became the ultimate hero. Now, what do you do with that? Well, Richardson didn't know, and he's pulling his hair out and he's praying. He's like, God, you've got to give me an end somehow. Help me. To, how, do I, how do I get the gospel in here? And they're thinking Judas is the hero. Things continue to get violent, and he's thinking he's got to take his family out, but the Saul we people uh, enjoy him being there, not only to tell these stories, but because his wife uh, was trained in medicine and was providing uh, some basic health care for them. They saw their kids being healthier, and so they said, no, 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 no. We want you to stay, therefore we will make peace. And this is a big deal because they had been uh, fighting for years, these these three tribes. And so the Saul, we wanted to make peace to keep the Richardson family there. And he saw all of these people hold this council, and they began coming together. And he says, as the as the ceremony commenced, he saw young children being exchanged, being handed off and traded. One man in particular ran towards the enemy's camp and literally gave his son to the chief and said, raise him as your own. And Richardson said, what in the world is going on? And they said, it is a peace child. Richardson writes this, they knew that if a man would actually give his own son to his enemies, that man could be trusted. Suddenly Richardson had his in with the gospel. He told them about God who sent his own son as the peace child for sinful humanity. Christ came and endured the wrath of God against his enemies. It was a just and righteous wrath that sinners deserved, but Christ took it for them. He was punished in their place. Therefore, they now had peace with God. And even today, all who would turn from their sin and look to Christ in faith will not, will not face the final judgment, will not have to, to suffer condemnation for their sins, but they can know peace with God through Christ. Through Christ we have peace with God, but that peace is not meant to stop with us. It is a vertical peace between us and God, but it is also meant to extend to a horizontal peace with one another. In fact, Paul says we should be ruled by this peace of Christ. Now, this rule is not like the reign of a king. It is like the judgment of a referee in a game. It's that kind of ruling that he's talking about. In most games... Uh, Even today, but definitely in Rome, uh, the decree, the decision of the referee was law. There There was no appeal. There was no going back. Even if he got it wrong, he made the ruling and that's what you lived by. And Paul is saying the peace of Christ should be that kind of control, that kind of decisive factor in how we relate to one another. In other words we do not seek to be at enmity with one another. We do not delight to be at enmity with one another. We don't just say, oh well, we're never going to get along. Paul says, no, that's not the mindset. The peace of Christ rules over your life. It is the the arbitrator, the decision maker. It is what causes you to extend love towards one another, seeking forgiveness and bearing with one another and being patient because we are to be emulating and displaying the fact that we have peace with God by our peace with one another as the people of God. And that kind of life will produce thankfulness in us, both for God and for one another. Fifth, we are not just to live by the peace of Christ, we are also to live by the word of Christ. How are you going to grow in godliness? Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Well, imagine you're a new homeowner. Imagine you buy this home and you move in and what do you start doing? What's the first thing you do. You start making it yours, right? This is not just a house. Now it's going to be our home, and you start moving this over here and putting this there, and, and say, no, 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 that's gotta let's let's move that and put that over there, and and maybe it's. You're hearing that as a guy holding an extraordinarily large piece of furniture in your hands and your wife making the decision. Maybe not. It doesn't matter. The point is, uh, you're moving things in. You're moving them around. You're making the place yours. And I think you know, in a similar way, Paul says, to let the word dwell richly means you let it take ownership of your life. You let it come in and fill every nook and cranny. You let it move out things that shouldn't be there and move in other things in its place. You let it seep down in the deepest crevices of your soul so that it changes how you think and feel and see the world and even the people around you. And notice it's the word of Christ. That's a bit unusual in the Bible. We usually see it as the word of God, but it still makes sense because the scriptures are not only written by Christ, the scriptures have Christ as the focus of their message. From the very first verse of the first book to the last verse of the last book, the Bible Is a book about Jesus Christ, and therefore it is the Word of Christ. What are we supposed to do once this Word is richly dwelling in us? Listen to what he says Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. We are filled up not just to be changed, but to help others be changed. And who is he writing to here? It's not the pastors, it's not the elders, it's not the Sunday school teachers, it's just ordinary, everyday Christians. God intends every believer to be involved in some way in a ministry of the Word, teaching and admonishing one another with the Bible. That doesn't mean you all go out and become small group leaders. It doesn't mean that you all go out and start teaching classes, but it means the Word of Christ is supposed to dwell, you, dwell in you in such a way that it then comes out of you in encouraging and in, in helpful ways to other Christians. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about this a lot, but... For now, th- think about why that's so important. Think about why that would be important in the first century. Have you ever thought about how the Christians had their daily devotions? How do they have their daily devotions? Well, hopefully it wasn't by a fly hitting them in the eyeball. Like just happened to me. But how do they do it? I mean, they, most of them were not wealthy enough to have a handwritten copy of the Bible in their home. Some of them were only functionally literate. They could not, they could not read and write extensively and just enough to do business. So how would they have done their devotions? They couldn't curl up at night with a Bible reading to their kids as a family. They couldn't have it downloaded on their iPod, jamming away down through Jerusalem, listening to Isaiah blaring out in their ears. It didn't happen. In a recent article, Tony Payne asked this question, how did they fill their minds and hearts with God's Word so that they could grow in faith? Since we know faith comes by hearing the Word of God. I think the answer is much the same as the one I give to my kids when they look at me incredul- incredulously and say, what do you mean there didn't you, there didn't used to be uh, SMS or Facebook? How did you keep in touch with your friends? I'd say, oh, we'd actually go around to each other's places and like talk. Or I'd pick up the phone and call them and, you know, talk. When you read the New Testament, you see over and over again that we are to be talking to one another specifically speaking the word of god to one another to build one another up in romans 15 the roman christians are called and in fact able to instruct one another paul tells the ephesians speak the truth of god's word in love for their growth in christ and titus paul says hey you elders be able to teach and instruct but guess what he also says older women teach and train younger women The writer of the Hebrews, in his long exposition about the living power of the Word of God, says, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Payne goes on to say, the normal way in which people heard the Word of God and fed upon it and drew encouragement to persevere and to grow was by hearing it from the lips of another believer. Pastors and teachers had a special responsibility to speak and teach God's word, but it was the joy and privilege of all believers to exhort and instruct one another, to teach and admonish one another every day that it is called today. Yeah, I don't want to come out here busting chops, so let me just ask you, when's the last time you actually talked about a Bible verse to somebody when you gathered here and it wasn't in the context of a class or a sermon? When's the last time someone un- unloaded problems on you and your first thought was not just, it's going to be okay or I'm sorry to hear about that, but it was a, but it was a verse that, that, that came to your mind and came off your lips as a means of encouraging that person or maybe correcting them. You know, sometimes we just need to hear, you're a whiny baby and you suck it up and take it because there are people that have a lot worse than you do. And all I ever do is hear you complain. I love you, but let's move on, Right? Now, we don't say that often, you know, uh, you know, but, but there are times when it should be said. And we, we attach a verse at the end of it, right? Okay. My point is, do we, you know, and, and to be honest, I got really convicted about this a couple weeks ago. I read a blog article and it said it was called Quote Guy. And this guy was talking about this other pastor who always had a, always had a quote from a, a commentary or from a theology book. And he was always real quick. He said, but you know, he said, I don't want to be known as Quote Guy. I want to be known as Bible Guy. I'm to be known as the guy who always has a verse, just boom, right there. And I think about far too often quoting from silly sitcoms rather than actually encouraging and building up like I should the people of God with the Word of God, not just in these formal settings, but in the, in the ups and downs of daily life, whether it's on Facebook or whether it's on the phone or whether it's stopping by for a visit, whether it's before church or after church or wherever, Paul tells them, They are to be filled with the Word, letting it dwell in them richly, that they can exhort and admonish and encourage and teach and correct one another. More than that, what does Paul say? Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs of thankfulness in your hearts to God. Why do you sing? When you come here on Sunday mornings, why do you sing? When you're bopping down the, car, the, the, uh, down the road in your car, why do you sing, if you sing? Why do you do it? How do you sing? First of all, Paul assumes that the songs we sing are good songs. I have to say, that's not always the case. Having just visited a very large church my parents go to, not all the songs are good songs. Some of them are weird. And the lyrics don't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. And they're hard to sing. And you're thinking, what are we doing? Especially when you've got a disco ball shining behind, uh, the, uh, the lyrics on the, on the, on the screen. You understand, if we ever get screens, th- there's no animation. Okay? You, you watch television at home, not here. It's gonna be like black with white letters and that's all you're getting, okay? Uh, and, unless I die and, and Joe and Richard take over, okay? Uh, then, then they can do whatever they wanna do, cause I, I won't, I won't matter, it won't matter much to me then. Okay? But the point is, why are you singing? Oh, why are you singing these these great songs that that are taking either distillations of theology or the very words of scripture? Highest place. It's just just Philippians 2. Why are you singing that? Paul says you should be singing that to encourage and teach people around you. Have you ever thought about that? This isn't about how well you sing either. It's not about being either Pavarotti on the one hand or a reject for American Idol on the other. That's not the point. Okay? I fall in the middle, but probably closer to the American Idol side. Okay? You know, not not real great, kind of stinky. You know, the guy that they show in the in the clips reel at the end of the season. You know, that would be me. But I'm still commanded to sing in such a way that people say, man, he believes that. And what a wonderful truth to believe. And they get encouraged and they start singing. It becomes a means of encouragement and instruction and admonishment. You know, I, I know especially for you guys, sometimes singing doesn't seem all that manly. Understand David, the man who was told he can't build the temple because his life is soaked in the blood of his enemies, sang his way into battle. I mean, you read some of these psalms and he's in a cave hiding out with his mighty men, getting ready to go slaughter some Philistines. And he's writing psalms, he's singing. Singing a manly thing to do, let me tell you. There should be an evident thankfulness in our hearts to God when we sing. Not just for Him, but for one another. If we're going to do any of this, though, it starts with going back and allowing ourselves to be so soaking up the Word of Christ that it dwells richly in us. The last thing, and we'll be done. We live for the glory of Christ. We live for the glory of Christ. Verse 17, whatever you do, in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is probably the most simple and clear instruction for the Christian life. It is a catch-all for everything that has come before. Do every single thing, whether you're talking or, or walking around or whatever it is, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. In Paul's day, when the Roman soldier was given a task reform, he would do it in the name of his emperor. The centurion wouldn't just just go out and say, you know, I'm doing this for me. No, he would say, I am here because Caesar Augustus has decreed it to be, and I will ensure it takes place. He was doing it in the name of the emperor. And now, Paul says the same should be true for Christ's people. We do, do everything in his name. What does that mean? It means two things. We do everything for him, and we do everything in a way that honors him. Okay? So, if you have, if you, if you work at a, at a corporation job and you've got a logo, uh, stitched on your sleeve somewhere, or on your hat, or on your jacket, you're, you're not just there as Sammy Sandwich Meat doing a job. You're there as a representative of the company. And they've got certain standards. And if you don't meet them, you're out. How much more so for Christ? You're walking around. You're walking around saying, "I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian." You're saying, "I'm one of Christ. I'm one of Christ. I'm one of Christ." You better live in such a way that He is honored in that. You're not doing things so that people pat you on the back. You're doing things that can look to Him and give Him the honor. That is due Him. That's the very essence of living the Christian life with His character under the blanket of His love. By His peace and His word, we live for the glory of the Son who saved us. This is why Paul says we are ambassadors for Christ, not just bearing His message, but imitating His very life in how we bear the message. Did you catch the theme in all these verses? Verse 15, be thankful. Verse 16, teaching, admonishing, singing with thankfulness. Verse 17, do everything in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You see, it's possible to live this way, which for some of us sounds absolutely unattainable, but it's possible because we are living as God's chosen people, holy and beloved. In other words, we are living a life that is lived in response to mercy and grace. That is what causes us to be thankful and that is what causes us to be freed from a performance mentality that says, if I don't do this, I'm not saved. Of course you're saved. You're one of Christ's chosen, holy and beloved. Therefore, you go out there. doesn't matter what people say. doesn't matter what people think. doesn't matter if you fall flat on your face. You get up and you keep moving because you are living by grace. Again and again and again, God offers his hand and says, all of the resources that you need are at your disposal. Simply call out and ask for them and they will be yours. Whether it's the resources to live a godly life and, and just the everyday parenting and marriage and work, whether it's going through some difficult trial, whether it's dealing with uh, an an insane problem at work, whatever it is. The life of the Christian is lived by grace, and that means we can have a heart of thanks to God through Christ. In his commentary on Colossians, John Phillips says that when he was growing up in Britain, a new suit was a great occasion. He said the economic depression overshadowed the country and money was scarce. To have a new suit was a big deal. And he said the first place you always wore that new suit was the church. In fact, it was often called the church suit because it was so valuable and so precious you only wore it at church or on special occasions like funerals or weddings. Paul says in Christ we have been given a new suit. We have been clothed with the person and work of Jesus himself. But this is not just a suit we take out and wear on special occasions. It's meant for daily use. We wear it all the time knowing it will never be worn out, it will never decay, it will never fade. In fact, it will only glow brighter and brighter and brighter as God not only declares us righteous, but makes us righteous by His Word and His Spirit and one another in His Son. Therefore, loved ones, if you are in Christ, then put on Christ. Seek a life of godliness, even as you seek to put to death the sinful ways of your old lives. Father, this is our prayer this morning. We've asked that in everything that Paul has said, things that, that um, were not explained fully, perhaps were not even explained clearly, that God, you would bring us back to the, the, the clear word of Colossians 3 and you would do a work of conviction and encouragement in our hearts. God, I pray that whether it's in small ways or in big ways, that you would not allow any of us to leave here unchanged by being in your presence. It's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen.